Hey everybody, you are listening to the No Shortage of Questions podcast. Thank you for listening today. My name is Nick and I'm joined by Andy who's up in Minnesota. Andy, how are you doing today? Nick, I'm doing awesome. How are you? Doing wonderful. Is it uh, still 15 below up there? No, it is like 35 at least yesterday and I think that uh, it might be around 18, 20, something like that right now. So considerably warmer. Although uh, my favorite part of the cold day was my son Peter went out without a coat and uh, one of his projects for uh, the snow day was to go outside, experience the elements, and then come in and write about it. So he came in and said that it was cold. So <laughs> He went out without a coat on? He went out without a coat. He did have long sleeves, and he had a baseball cap <laughs> and boots. But he just he just took off. He was on his project. He didn't care too much. So A young man full of adventure in his heart. That's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So today is President's Day. Andy, are you doing anything special for President's Day? My wife and kids right now are at the bakery, uh, and I am here with you. And uh, so I'm torn on that one. My son, Peter, calls the bakery the chocolate donut store. And if they were good this morning and got all of their homework and practicing and work done, they were able to go to the donut store. So that's where... They're at right now having chocolate donuts. and uh, I would suggest that you have made a bad choice. <laughs> That's right. I think so. Always choose the bakery. <laughs> Always choose the bakery. So they were leaving. One of the guys on staff said, well, Peter, I think they're out of donuts. Which <laughs> triggered, a, triggered a traumatic memory in his mind. Uh, that is a he, cruel joke. That is a cruel <laughs> joke. It was very funny. Thankfully, he figured out pretty quick he was kidding, but... <laughs> so awesome. that's what's going on here very cool well we are studying mark chapter three we uh we were a little late last week with mark chapter two but uh, if you missed that that's available now and and again please email us uh at the no shortage podcast at gmail.com we look forward to getting your emails with your questions and your insights uh so please email us but uh today we are going in mark chapter three Starting at verses four, uh, we're going to read verses four through six here. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, there was a man there who had a, a withered hand. He said to that man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So we're only in chapter three at the very beginning of chapter three, and they're already plotting how to kill Jesus. We have some very interesting things here. We have Sabbath stuff, which we talked about in last episode. We have the Pharisees and Herodians working together. Uh, they weren't people who typically worked together back then, but they had a common enemy. Nothing brings us together like a common enemy, right? Uh, it, and they have this enemy, Jesus, and he's their enemy because he is breaking their regulations, breaking their rules. Uh, to Jesus, religion was about love, uh, loving one another and love of God. Uh, for them, it was about rituals and rules. And, and to Jesus, that was their rituals and rules were just completely irrelevant compared to, uh, compared to the opportunity to love another. So uh, how do we see religion? Do we see religion as serving one another and loving one another? Do we see it as a set of rules, or is it both? Andy, how do you see religion? It was interesting this morning when I was up doing daily devotions. I'm reading through the one-year Bible. Today is February 17, and in the beginning of Mark chapter 3 was actually the New Testament reading for this morning. So that was, I thought, kind of a neat coincidence that we're talking about it now. And what came to mind to me as I was reading that passage this morning is how beautiful it was that not only Jesus was healing, revealing his heart, God's heart is good, as we talked about on the last podcast, uh, but also that Jesus was kind of having to weigh the importance of two things, the uh, idea of what is the Sabbath for and how do we honor the Sabbath, and also how do we honor and love people. And, and so I think that it was... Uh, just a beautiful thing that he's healing this man. I think that we would, obviously, as followers of Jesus, do the same. How uh, uh, how do we view religion? Uh, I mean, do we see it as both? Uh, and by both, I mean, you know, loving your neighbor versus uh, regulation following. 
I, I think that, I mean, there is an element of both. I think it's near impossible to separate the two. Uh, I could be absolutely wrong on that. I'd, but I, I think that uh, it's, it's really easy to uh, take faith and boil it down wrongly into a set of rules to follow. And I think that part of what the uh, Pharisees are doing here is just trying to, uh, you know, put Jesus in a box, get him into a corner, you know, catch him doing the wrong thing, show that he's guilty, try and take him down a notch. I mean, people are doing that all the time today. Uh, but I don't think you want to take away the notion of obedience. You take away the notion of ritual out of the act of following Christ, because in our rituals, in our obedience, there is a lot of uh, truth. There's also grace that comes through those things. So uh, I don't think that it's uh, an either or, but I think that there are times like with Jesus that we're, you know, forced into the position of making a choice, and clearly we go with what Jesus did in this case. Um, uh, one more comment on that. I think often people do kind of wrongly boil religion down to, you know, I'm supposed to be nice to my neighbor, I'm supposed to follow these rules, do those rituals. And because that's, you know, basically the very limited scope that they have of faith, they abandon it, they walk away because they don't see any meaning or value in it. And, uh, you know, I don't blame them for that because they're walking away from a definition that is incomplete. And uh, I think the alternative to that is to explore the deeper meanings of all of those things. Uh, you know, because we're not called to be rule followers. We're not called to just, you know, obey certain rules. But obedience uh, in following Christ helps us to learn and experience who Christ is just as, as ritual does. Nick, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I found it interesting that this came up after the reading we had in worship yesterday, which is we're reading through the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says, if you have conflict with your with a, your neighbor, with somebody in the community, and you're coming to worship to make an offering, put your offering down and go make peace before you make your offering. This idea that making peace with your neighbor is more important to God than whatever you might offer to God, you know, to, to bring to the altar. And so Jesus has this strong focus on being in right relationships with one another and loving one another more important than all the rules and regulations and all the worship bits that we have uh, in a worship service that if you truly want to please God, you know, be in right relationship with one another. And, and so you ask the question, what, so I asked, what is the purpose of religion? With that being said, what is the purpose of religion? And if we if we look at the theology of the Christian church, you can look at it and say, well, the purpose of religion is to give us hope for eternal life. But that doesn't say much for this life. So you can say, well, it helps us to get past our mistakes, to get past our sins. It help us, helps us to live a life free of shame and guilt. But that's kind of self-centered if that's all it is. So then we could say, well, it gives us purpose uh, that our faith gives us purpose. It gives us a calling that we otherwise wouldn't have. But the assumption I think that's there is that there's no other worthy purpose in life other than faith. And that's to say, if you're an atheist, you can still live a noble life that is full of purpose. You can help others. You can be you know, work in medicine. You can invent something that makes a huge difference. You can teach. I don't think you have to be religious to make a difference and to live a life of purpose. So so then what is the purpose of religion? I would say kind of what you said, where it's a little bit of everything. But but at the end, I would say religion helps us to live a life of peace and joy because our loving God has made promises to us, promises that give us hope and assurance of forgiveness. Uh, and it calls us to do what we can do to help others also know that they're loved, uh, to help them in whatever it is, but to help them know that they're loved. So they might live a life of peace and joy, of peace and joy that says, yes, I'm living in the kingdom now, the kingdom that will come, the kingdom that is here. I will live in that kingdom now. Uh, God, Jesus gave the greatest commandment to love God and love your neighbor. And I don't think we ever asked the question, why should we love our neighbor? I think we think, well, we love our neighbor because we're supposed to. But I also think that Jesus says to love your neighbor so that they know that they're loved. Because when people know that they're loved, then they experience peace and joy in different ways. And so I think that's the purpose of religion is to live a life of joy and peace and to to have a, jo a, a joy that is independent of whatever goes on in life and, and 
joy that comes from being loved and sharing that love with others. That's what I would say our religion is about. But I know that certainly for the Pharisees, that's not what their religion was about. And uh, and I know that we can also get stuck in the ways of rules and uh, and the law and not not see those who need to be loved uh, who are standing right next to us. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, it may be a cliche, but there is some truth uh, in it when you hear people say that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And, and I think, you know, you could challenge that in some different ways, but I think there's some real beauty in that because it kind of gets at what is at the heart of Christian faith. In the same way that we talked about last week, Lutheran theology says, you know, that Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E, what Christ has done, and religion is spelled D-O, uh, you know, what we're supposed to do. I think it's kind of in the same same camp. Uh, and so how do we explore that, you know, relationship? How do we get deeper in that, and how do we follow Jesus? Uh, we're going to hit on that in a number of different ways, but I think that's another angle on it, that Christian faith is a relationship with Christ and uh, that's important. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think I think the relationship with Christ aspect starts with having a good relationship with others, too. It's it, I don't think that we could have that we could ha- have fractured relationships with everyone around us and then claim to have a good relationship with God. I think mm, yeah. I think for God to God wants us to be in, in right relationships. God wants us to be at peace with others. And so I think it's all part of it's all part of the life of faith. One, one more comment I can't resist on this one is that often, though, when we see religion or Christian faith and it's defined, again, as what we do, all the, I mean, the grace is pretty much removed. I mean, I've heard, you know, a nice summary of that is people boil Christian faith down to, you know, I'm supposed to love more, do more, give more, serve more, kind of those. It's all about more, more, more. It's all about what I do. It's, you know, having to, you know, carry one more thing in my life, keep one more plate in the air. And uh, it's it's really not, I mean, that's not what it comes down to. I mean, it's uh, freedom, it's life, uh, and all of those things are found in Christ. And when people don't find those or don't explore those or think that it's something other than that, that's when they walk away. Uh, we're doing Alpha right now at church, and we had eight tables last night, which is just awesome. And uh, I was visiting the conversation at all of the tables, and that was one of the conversations. It was really uh, someone talking about, you know, uh, how their faith sometimes goes up and down, and uh, that was related to how do we define, how do we see, how do we understand who Jesus is to us? And I think that often when we just limit it to, well, rule following, so to speak, then uh, it's hard to find richness in life in that. So, Nick, I, we could go on, but I better move us on to... Uh, verse 11 and 12 of Mark 3. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. So last chapter, we heard Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man. Now the demons call him the Son of God. What does that mean? Nick? Well, I think it's natural for us to think of Son of God in terms of the Trinity. We have 2,000 years of theology that that helps us to look back through Scripture, and we see that through that lens. But I don't think that Mark intended for the reader to understand it that way. I don't think Mark understood the concept of the Trinity in the way that we do. And so Mark probably expected the reader to understand it in terms of how Son of God was used in the Old Testament, which in the Old Testament, it really isn't an uncommon title. Uh, It was used in in three different ways that I found, and I didn't look that hard or that long. But in Genesis 6, it says the angels are the sons of God. In Hosea 11, it says the nation of Israel is the son of God. And in 2 Samuel 7, it says the king of the nation is the son of God. And then if you go to the Apocrypha in Sirach 4, it says the good man is the son of God. So anyone who's good is a son of God. Uh, so according to that definition, to be a son of God, one must especially be especially near, close to God, and be a good person and f- have others to see that, oh, that person is, seems to be close to God. So Mark would expect, I think, the reader to understand Jesus as being someone like that, who has a unique relationship with God 
and no other word besides sun could really describe it. So I would also say that if we're reading through the rest of the New Testament, according to Galatians and 2 Corinthians and Romans and 1 John, we too are sons and daughters of God. And and I think it's important to say that, that, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, if you claim to be a Christian, you claim to be a son or daughter of God, a child of God. We are made children of God in our baptisms. We are near to God uh, because God is near, has chosen to be near to us. Uh, and so the idea that Jesus is the son of God, I don't think is, is necessarily a title for the Messiah or the Christ, which is a different word. Uh, that's the word that gets him in trouble. That's the word that makes him uh, accused of being a blasphemer. But to say that you're a son of God is just to say that you are someone who is near to God. And so God is near to us. And so we say that we are uh, we are near to God. It's interesting. I was just looking at when when Jesus was put on trial, he's being accused of being the Messiah. They say you you claim to be the Messiah, the son of the blessed one. Uh, Messiah or Christ is the reason for the charge. Jesus says, I am. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one. So when Jesus is accused and put on trial, they claim that he is the son of God and he comes back with being the son of man. Uh, it, it's really interesting to me. I think there's there's probably something much deeper going on here that we just might not understand. Uh, but son of God and son of man, how, how others uh, see Jesus and how Jesus sees himself. Uh, I would say the one thing that's interesting, very interesting, is that demons can see this. Demons can see this relationship and realize they cannot be in the presence of someone so close to God. That's that's the whole thing. The demon shouts out and says, I I know who you are. Uh, don't come near us. Don't come near me. Don't come near me. And because there's a fear that they know that they cannot be that close to somebody who is close to God. So uh, what are you thinking, Andy? Well, I'm thinking about uh, something that you talked about, how through faith we can be called sons of God, men can at least, and as people, children of God. And uh, that's a that's a real privilege. I mean, uh, I I'm thinking of this uh, worship song, the title of which I can't think of, but it talks about this privilege, this honor, this incredible opportunity, uh, this incredible name that we have that we could be called children of God. And uh, you know the famous hymn, if you go back a ways, "Children of the Heavenly Father." Uh, there's a real sense that really gets at the notion that we talked about in the last verse of uh, relationship versus religion. I mean, knowing Christ is not about going to work and doing all your tasks. Knowing Christ is living in relationship with someone as a son or daughter of the Most High. And, you know, it's kind of like, you know, family reunions are sometimes talked about when it comes to worship, do you? I mean, if you love your family, I mean, you go to the family reunion. I mean, you go to the gathering, and there's great joy and honor and experience in many different ways of being together with them. You can't always get there, but it's a crucial piece. So, yeah, I like what you said. Uh, yeah. All right, let's move right along, verses 14 and 15. So Jesus is calling his disciples. It says, Jesus appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. So these 12 disciples were called to be with Jesus through everything. At this point, Jesus is really starting to accumulate a crowd. The, the crowds are just everywhere he goes. They hear about his ability to heal. Uh, they hear about all the other things that he's doing. And so wherever he goes, he's just surrounded by people. But Jesus knows that the crowds will be there one day, and then they'll be gone the next. But these 12 are supposed to be with Jesus through everything, through the thick, through the thin, through all the good stuff, through all the bad stuff. Not only that, they're called to be sent out. Jesus wanted them to be his representatives, to go and to continue doing what he was doing. So, Andy, is this how you understand discipleship? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to be a disciple, I mean, I think the Greek word is the same word that we get the word math or mathematics from. What is it? Mathetes or something means to be a learner. Uh, it means to be a follower. I think that discipleship is something that's just crucial uh, that, and that's often uh, forgotten. Dallas Willard calls discipleship the great omission as opposed to the great commission. We are so good at getting people to you know, come to faith, to declare their faith, but then we don't develop what does it mean to be a 
Christ follower Ash Wednesday is coming up, and for many years we've played a short clip from a NUMA video. That's one of the Rob Bell videos, and it's all about uh, may you, I can't remember the exact phrase, but may you have the dust, of, may you bear the dust of your rabbi or something like that. And the idea is that in Jesus' day, you know, disciples would follow their rabbi, their teacher, the person from whom they were learning how to do life so closely that the dirt that would be kicked up by the feet of their rabbi, you know, of course, would settle on their clothing. I'm not giving the exact quote of that right, right you know, but may you uh, bear or have or wear the dust of your rabbi. In other words, you were so close to that person that the dust from their feet would settle on you. Uh, I think that's a beautiful way of understanding how we do discipleship. Another piece from the verse that we read that is huge is says that Jesus might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. I want you to notice the community element there. Uh, two weeks ago in our traditional service, we preached on the passage in Mark about how he sends them out two by two. And the important thing there is Jesus never calls people into isolation. Jesus always calls people into community. And Jesus always sends people out in community, two by two or here. You know, he's appointing the 12 that he might send them out to preach. Um, I think that, yeah, we're representatives of Christ. I've never really liked this uh, phrase. I think Luther used it, that I've heard, you know, that we're to be little Christs. I've never quite understood what on earth that means. But, um, yeah, to identify their life with Christ, I think that that is, is uh, absolutely a crucial piece. And, uh, again... It's being a part of a family as opposed to having a task list that you're supposed to uh, fill out, as we've talked about in earlier verses. Nick? Yeah, absolutely. I talked a little bit about this yesterday in my sermon. The what we, what we believe about discipleship is that we are called to learn, that we are called to grow, and that we are called to do. The learning piece comes from hearing what Jesus said and reflecting on what Jesus said. I think that and specifically in the Lutheran Church, we have this great education system set up through confirmation. And then once people are confirmed, it's like they kind of feel like they've learned it all and that they can go and, and live their life. And, and I think that it's a continual education that we, we, can, we need to continue to be fed, to continue to be you know, nourished by the, the good news, but also to learn and to to have a desire to be changed, to, to, you know, it's, we can hear, we can hear what Jesus has to say, but if we don't have a desire to learn, if we don't have a desire to grow, if we don't have a desire to be changed, if we don't have a desire to live in the kingdom now, what is, what, what are we going to do with everything that we hear? And so I think it's important to have that desire to want to grow. And then it's the, the do part. It's, you know, being a disciple is learning, it's reflecting, it's growing, and it's going out and doing, it's going out and being the representative. And so uh, we just finished an adult Sunday school series on the theology of Mr. Rogers. <laughs> That's great. And how so much of what the way that he was, I don't know if you saw the, I'm sure you actually, I'm sure you didn't see the recent movie. I heard about it. All these people were saying it was great. No, you're <laughs> correct. I did not go to the movie. I highly recommend it. I think it's should be on Netflix sometimes. I don't know, okay. actually. I don't. But it's a, it's, a, it's a worthwhile watch. They were talking to uh, the reporter in the movie was talking to Mr. Rogers' wife and said, what's it like to be married to a saint? And she said, oh, he's not a saint. We don't refer to him as a saint because if we say that he's a saint, then we're saying that the way he is and the things he does cannot be duplicated. He practices a lot. The way that he is, he is that way because he practices that. Every day he practices kindness and he practices love. And I think it's important for us to go out and to practice just being the types of people uh, that Jesus would call a disciple. Now, on, uh, obviously, we are not called to perfection. Perfection is unattainable. We are people of grace. The Lutheran Church is a theology of grace. We serve a God of grace. Uh, but I think we should spend time learning and reflecting and growing and practicing, practicing what it means to love our neighbor, even if it seems like they don't need it, but still doing all that we can to practice uh, what it would be to be a disciple of Jesus. Uh, I certainly don't want to come across as saying that our religion is a religion that of doing, uh, but but I think that being a disciple is, is being called into a new reality. It's being called into a new life, and that life is uh, 
the life and the reign of Christ, which is loving our neighbor and, and practicing the difference uh, of that life versus the, the life that, we, uh, that we're accustomed to. Very well put. Well, moving on to verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. Now, why would his family think he's out of, the, he's out of his mind? And didn't they know that this was kind of his role in life, that he was set apart for this? And isn't that kind of the purpose of the Christmas story, to make that clear that he's set apart for this, that this is his role in life? Nick, what do you do with this one? I've always read this. It, it, you know how we read these verses, and we just kind of read them quick. If you read this closely, a crowd gathered there so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. It was the, the last straw. The pressures of this ministry made him miss meals and so his family was like, that's, that's it. <laughs> we don't mind you getting in arguments down at the synagogue. We don't mind. You know, <laughs> I mean, we, we know the Pharisees are plotting to kill you, but if, you, if this is going to make you miss meals, Jesus, you, you got to stop. <laughs> <laughs> miss meals. And I get it because I'm open to whatever as long as I have time to eat, right? <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, there's that's people great. like, oh, I forgot to eat lunch today. How? I never forget lunch. I mean, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> that's great. I've never forgotten a, a lunch in my life, uh, but I think it's I think it's an interesting question. Uh, did they not know about the Christmas story about their older brother, or did they not expect it to happen like this? Did they know who Jesus was? Was did they know what Jesus was called to do, and did they not expect it to happen like this? Did they not expect the Messiah? to be revealed to the community in this way, that Jesus was this healer who attracted great crowds? Did they not expect Jesus to go down and to cause trouble in the synagogues? Did they just expect that everyone was going to follow? Did they just expect that the entire, at, at, at one moment he was going to reveal himself and all of Israel was going to follow him? This, this leads me to in other places in Scripture where even Peter rebukes Jesus. Peter follows Jesus for a certain period of time, and, and Jesus says, the son, you know, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be, I'm going to be lifted up on a cross. And Jesus, Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, don't say stuff like that. I think part of this is each of them had their own expectation of who the Messiah was going to be, who the Christ was going to be, and what Jesus was going to do with that title. And Jesus didn't fit their description. And so they were all disappointed. And so they wanted to pull Jesus aside and say, you know, this is this is not what you're supposed to do. And I would say we would probably do the same thing. We would probably do the same thing if Jesus showed up here today. We would expect Jesus to do a certain thing, to be a certain way, to gather a certain amount of people, to have a certain amount of authority. And he didn't have that, or at least he didn't have that within the the realm of the, those who were in authority at that time. And so I think that's something that they struggled with. And I think it's something that we would struggle with today, not really understanding what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah in a way that God says, this is the way that I'm going to do it. It's a different way than I think we would expect. And, and I, I, I kind of, I mean, you got to feel sorry for these people. They, they grew up with him. They were, it's almost like they were too close to see the truth. Any thoughts, Andy? Yeah. Um, I liked your comment about how he didn't really fit necessarily what they thought he was supposed to be doing. I think that's very true of Jesus, uh, both then and now. People really don't know what to do with a lot of what Jesus was doing and uh, a lot of what Jesus did. And so they just ignore it or don't talk about it or say we don't do that part or kind of look past it all. Uh, absolutely. So did his family think that he was out of his mind? I think you've <laughs> kind of answered that question, but surely he didn't fit the box that they wanted him to be in. And we would, I'm sure, do the same if Jesus showed up again. We, we kind of, you know, we create God in our own image uh, often. You're supposed to be riding on a cloud, though. Where's your cloud? <laughs> <laughs> Where's your cloud? That's awesome. So those are those are kind of my thoughts on it. It must have been hard being in Jesus's family. <laughs> sure, right? can you imagine? That's great. Oh, man. All right, so uh, verse 22, let's just go to the, the next, very next verse. So the fa his family says he's lost his mind. 
And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So these teachers of the law, who I assume hear about Jesus, so they come down from Jerusalem to see him. And they're, oh, he is possessed by the devil. He's possessed. That's the only way that he can do these things. The teachers of the law, they're, they're looking at God incarnate in human form. They're looking at God. They're, they, they're looking at God in the face, and they think they are seeing the power of Satan. So this just brings you know a ton of questions. Can, can the world be more upside down? Uh, I immediately think, is this the result of Adam and Eve eating the apple? That we have such a, a misunderstanding of what good is and what evil is? Uh, and has the world thought the opposite? Has the world, have we seen Satan and think that we are seeing the power of and work of God? What do you think, Andy? Well, I think that excellent questions. The, the larger question is, can we see evil and think that it's God? I think that even sometimes with the best of intentions, uh, we will assign uh, things that are not of God to God. And the opposite happens as well. Do we see things of God and assume that they're evil or of the devil or wrong or should be rejected? Uh, absolutely, we do that. Good Christian, you know, people absolutely sort of mistake those two. Uh, the obvious extreme examples are cults. I mean, last night, you know, when we were talking about the will of God, uh, some other people were. I overheard their conversation. The subject of David Koresh came up, and the idea was cults, and people can think that something is of God when really it's probably of evil or the devil. So the larger question is, can we see good and be mistaken about what we believe it to be? Short answer is yes. I mean, I mean, it was the Lutheran faith, I think, that was, you know, the largest, or if not a majority, s certainly prevalent in the nation of Germany while the Holocaust was happening. And so, you know, a challenging question for Lutheran theology and discipleship is how did that happen, you know, in the homeland of Martin Luther? I mean, that's the ultimate example of evil, of, uh, you know, wrong happening and uh, good folks kind of just participating in it. So short answer is yes, often uh, I think we can be absolutely mistaken on what we're seeing. Uh, so it really comes down to a question of what then is the nature of God? I mean, who is God? If we're seeing evil and attributing it to God, if we're seeing good and attributing it to evil, uh, uh, it comes down to who do we believe that God, it is, God is and what does God do? And the short answer of that is God is good. I mean, sometimes when someone gets cancer, you know, I don't know what God's plan is. It must be God's doing. I don't think that cancer is attributable to God. Is it, you know, an outcome of our biology that happens? Yes. I don't think that God strikes people down with cancer. I think the heart of God is that God is good. We could get into other values of God, descriptions of God, but it kind of comes down to what is our understanding scripturally of who God is. And I think that when we see uh, Jesus doing many of these things, I mean, freeing, driving out demons is what we're talking about in verse 22. I mean, Christ, the presence of God, the Holy Spirit brings freedom. What he's doing is driving demons, and we could debate, you know, how we interpret the meaning of the word demon today. Uh, but, I mean, he's freeing people. He is bringing deliverance to people that are held in bondage. And, and whether, you know, every pastor jokes a time or two about a member or two that he or she has that, uh, you know, clearly are possessed by demons. Uh, and they'd love to free them. But uh, I think that at, at base level, that's what Christ does. Christ brings freedom. Christ brings life. Christ brings, free. Uh, you know, deliverance is kind of the word that I'm trying to get at. And uh, so, Nick, I, I could go on, but any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, we were having a very similar conversation in Sunday school yesterday with uh, some adults, the idea about what is good and what is evil. And, and it, the thing that struck me is that it's so difficult for us, like-minded Christians, similar backgrounds, similar everything, to agree on what is evil and what is good. What is the moral imperative? What is, I mean, what are the things that we truly believe is evil? 
And one of the guys said, you know, that the most evil thing going on in the world right now, nobody's talking about. And that's that every 10 seconds, a child in the world dies of starvation. And that's something that we can that we can solve. And, and I mean, over the course of since we've begun our podcast, you can say that 300 children or so have died of starvation. And and where is God? How, how could God allow that to happen? How could God allow that that millions of kids die every year? Uh, where is God and where where is God in the midst of that? apathetic attitude to just not care about what's going on in other places in the world and to not care about other children and to and so where what is good and what is evil so the question then becomes you know it's something that you've said now a couple weeks in a row that everyone who who god jesus performed a miracle on died uh, at some point and so i think our understanding of of, of death may be a bit i think most of us understand death as a curse that death is the ultimate bad thing that's going to happen to us in life. And I just don't think, you know, if we do believe that God is good, I think part of that is believing that this eternity that God has planned for us is so wonderful, is so good, that when we hear that somebody has died, I don't think we should take it as, oh, wow, that that's so that's so terrible. I mean, that's not what we would say in the moment, but but that Wow, they've they've gone to be with God and we trust that wherever that is, whatever that's 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 like, it's going to be a one. It's a wonderful thing, and so there could be some some rejoicing in that, knowing that you know the millions of children who die. I I remember hearing a presentation from a mother in Africa who had AIDS, and her her children had AIDS, and her her statement was, "My only hope, my only wish, is that my children die before me, so that I know when I die that they're." that I'm not leaving behind children who have nobody to care for them and nobody to love them. And it was the most devastating thing I've ever heard in my life to hear, to hear a mother say that about her children, but to, to be, to try to put myself in her shoes is just, it's an impossible, it's an impossible task to imagine that much pain, that much hopelessness, unless there is something on the other side of this life that is so wonderful. And so then the question becomes, what is good and what is evil? Well, you know, God is good and what God has planned for us and for those whom God loves is is good. And so we trust that whatever it is that that is next, whatever it is that God is going to do on the other side of death, it is a good thing. And we can participate in that goodness now. But I, I that's so then what is evil evil is anything that tries to draws us that draws us away from from god that has us intentionally ignoring the needs of others intentionally harming others doing things that makes life more difficult for others you know nick um i think it ties into one of the earlier verses one of the questions that you asked what is discipleship so as disciples how could we hear and i'm part of this camp it's hearing and not doing necessarily uh, as much as could be done. How do we hear that information and then not act on it? I mean, discipleship is paying attention to the things of God, and what I'm hearing you say is starving children, of course, is is a a you know certainly a concern of God. I mean, that was the classic Steve uh, Jobs. Uh, situation he walked in i think he was in a confirmation class in a lutheran church and he walked in and and he said uh if god is love why why is this happening you may know this story better than i do but he held out a copy of like time magazine or one of those and there on the cover was a starving child over in africa and the pastor didn't give the answer that was suitably uh acceptable for Steve and so he walked out and never went back into a church you know big missed opportunity the question for me uh, when I hear that story is did Steve Jobs uh, really was he moved enough by that to actually make a huge difference uh, you know philanthropically with his life to address the very problem that drove him away from God I'm unaware if he did or not I don't want to say that he did or that he didn't I know that one of his contemporaries, Bill Gates, have, has done exactly that with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and they've been so successful at taking the wisdom that they learned, you know, creating technology and trying to pour that into 
ways to solve world crises. I think they have four or five areas they're emphasizing. I think it's disease and hunger and education. And I don't want to, you know, identify it. I don't know their results or their approach that closely. But I mean, Bill Gates is someone who saw evil and took his massive leverage of resources and has walked into it headlong. And best to my knowledge, Steve Jobs, who's now deceased, didn't do that. And why is it? What causes us to leverage our lives and to follow Christ, you know, into bringing goodness into the midst of evil, to delivering people from whatever it is that's holding them bondage? Hunger would be example of that, good example of that. I think that you raise an excellent question. I also want to lift up the value of the church and not only our church but churches plural historically in seeing societal needs and stepping into and addressing those needs and i think often uh younger people especially people in our culture say see no purpose for the church don't understand the need for the church but it's often been the church that has been on the front lines addressing the very kinds of situations that you name. Um, Lutheran Social Services of, I, of Illinois, I think when I was in Chicago, had one of the highest rated percentages of how much of every dollar donated actually got to uh, meet needs through services and resources of people. Uh, you know, I mean, very high efficiency rate of directly taking as much of every dollar as possible and meeting needs. Catholic Charities is another example. ELCA World Hunger is one that gets talked about around here. Very uh, amazing moving things happening through the church that are probably not on a lot of people's radars. I mean, and it's discipleship happening through the ministry of the church that otherwise wouldn't get done. I remember a conversation I had with a good friend of mine ages ago, decades ago, and I was at seminary, and everyone wanted to talk about church, of course, and I think the church should do more of X, Y, and Z, and he named the social issues of his choice. And, uh, you know, the truth is the church is doing a ton on all of those, you know, the larger church as a whole. And... I sometimes wonder if he is actually doing that. I'm unaware if he is, uh, you know, significantly involved in any church. But I think that we're on the front line still and have been traditionally building hospitals. I mean, how many St. Mary's hospitals are there everywhere? Building hospitals, building senior home living, uh, meeting needs of real people who are living in bondage and facing issues. And I think that is just a beautiful thing. So are we doing enough? No. Could we do more? Yeah. And it all comes down to that discipleship piece. Uh, are we living and learning how to follow Christ? And uh, we were just talking last week about what are we going to do during Lent in our church to get the kids fired up. We always give them tangible, concrete projects that they can do to make a difference in the world. For a long time, it was the mal malaria nets and I'm not sure exactly what's on the plan this year. We did Super Bowl of Caring a couple Sundays ago, but I think a lot of opportunity there and a lot of room for growth. Nick? Yeah, well, just to touch on a couple things. First, we say what keeps us from getting involved. I think the thing that keeps us from getting involved is that it's such a big problem. We don't see how we can enter into the problem and, and be part of the solution because we don't see a solution. And I think that's a difficult thing to see that the problem is too big for us. And I just, instead of trying to figure out a way, I just choose not to uh, be involved at all just because it's so overwhelming. But, but I do think uh, another thing you said is that uh, how the church gets involved is important. And it's, it's incredible the things that the church is doing with specifically ELCA World Hunger, ELCA Bread for the World, all these things, but it's not something that we talk about. Or, you know, just Lutheran disaster relief. If there's a hurricane or an earthquake or fire, know that the church is there doing what it can to help those who have been affected by it. But instead, it seems like whenever the 
the church is brought up in the news or whenever the church is, I mean, even the church's publications is all about the social statements and the, th- the voices that are speaking the loudest out about immigration, about other things. And I'm not saying that those things aren't important, but I'm saying that the, the good things that we're doing, the things that everyone can agree upon, the things that everyone can rally behind, the things we do for hunger and the things we do in disaster response areas, we just we don't highlight those things. And I think it's important that people know that the church sees the, sees the need there. The church sees a moral imperative to go out and to feed those who are hungry, not just around the world, but around the country and all over the place. And that's the work of the church. That is the work of the love of Christ in action. And it's not something that we talk about very often. Yeah. Um, when I was, uh, I think you're exactly right. What, what unifies us often when we focus on what divides us, uh, people just kind of fall away. They're not interested. So that when there is something that can unite us all, they're just kind of still on the margins. But if we really lift up those things that we can all get our arms around, I think that's a absolutely a crucial piece. It's so much, you know, you're right, it's very touchy and controversial. But so often it seems like people want to, all they want to talk about is what divides us. And often the things that unify us get lost. And... Uh, yeah, I kind of agree with what you said a moment ago, absolutely. The other thing that happens why we don't address these sometimes is I think that when I was a kid, it was something like, they called it famine fatigue, or it had somewhere that had something to do with fatigue, which was one famine after another after another. And we'd have, we got to rally around this, we got to have the big offerings, we got to, you know, support there, be there, and it was kind of like, wow, didn't we just do this? Is this just going to go on forever? And how do we how do we speak into that? Um, you know, people kind of get fatigued of meeting, you know, these major crisis needs. Uh, I think Lutheran Disaster Relief does a great job. LDR.org, I think, is their website. But I think they're probably facing that same kind of thing. Wow, another one we got to do a special offering on. And uh, I just want to say that there is somebody to blame here. There is somebody <laughs> to blame, and it's the rock stars because. Back in the 80s, the rock stars used to have concerts where they would come together and they would raise money and they would you know, bring in awareness. And the rock stars of today just don't do that. So it could be that I don't listen to rock and roll anymore, that I only listen to talk radio. So maybe these things are happening. But you know, where are the rock stars? Where is, where is Bono? We need more Bono. Well, you know, let's talk about that. I mean, Live Aid is what I think you were talking about. Wasn't that in the 80s or something, late 80s? Yeah. A big, big rock concert. But Bono has done a ama- Bono, by the way, who's a Christ follower. Uh, we were doing Alpha last night. If you don't know what Alpha is, it's basically Christianity A to Z. Alpha.org is the website. Very worth going if you haven't gone through before. But um, Bono was quoted last night, and, and he was one of the ones lead, uh, you know, initiators on addressing the AIDS crisis. And he went around church to church to church in the United States and said, hey, why are you, why, why aren't you doing more about AIDS? And, I mean, this is just... Uh, and we were at a leadership event once, a group of us from my church, and, and one of the speakers was Bono challenging people to be more aggressive. In, in. So we looked for a project, and we found the Mashia Foundation in Jos, Nigeria. And now we have this fabulous relationship. They come see us about every two years. We send them money on a regular basis. We have special offerings for them. And what is amazing is it's kind of the answer to the question that you were raising earlier. A mother about you know doesn't want to die before her children because who is going to take care of them and what's amazing is that's exactly what they do at the Mashiach Foundation you know it's education for children who's going to give them education it's food for children it's medical care they're building a medical clinic they do uh, job education for uh, uh, AIDS widows they they care for people with AIDS amazing work there are so many and again where did it come out of came out of the church one of the people there was an ELCA missionary. Uh, I don't think technically she's an ELCA missionary anymore, but it's the Mashiach Foundation in Jos, Nigeria, doing amazing work. And we love people like that because they are stepping onto the front lines. But why did we get involved? It was because someone stepped forward and challenged us uh, to do so. And uh, yeah, so it's kind of that mix. You know, people get fatigue on it, but then you also, there's so much going undone that we can we can address. Nick, any closing thoughts on that piece? Yeah, that's a cool story. I, I use Bono as an example because I know of all the stuff that he does. And 
all the stuff that you two you know they're just i think it's really cool that they use their uh they use their place and their their platform in society as a way to proclaim what i would say is uh you know doing doing their best as disciples i think that's that's a pretty cool witness yeah, it was fun hearing him uh, be quoted on at Alpha last night. He basically, he said, you know, either Jesus was who he said he was or he was nuts. But what you can't call him is a great moral teacher. And any of us, you know, kind of on the inside immediately see the reference, the, the roots of that statement in the work of C.S. Lewis, his Mere Christianity book. Uh, but, yeah, it's fun to see Bono. It's funny, one of the uh, megachurch pastors in Chicago uh, had to call up one of his kids said, yeah, some some rock star named Bono wants to meet with me. Says he's working hard on AIDS. Have you ever heard of this guy? <laughs> he had no, no idea. I just can't imagine said. a rock star on a tour bus reading C.S. Lewis. That's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. So, Well, Nick, if we move on to verse 28 and 29, truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. I mean, Nick, this is a tough one. Can I be forgiven? This is the one unforgivable sin. What does it mean to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? And why won't God forgive that sin? What is that all about? I'm glad you have this question because I get asked this question. and I don't have a really clean answer. What are your thoughts? So again, going back to what we said about Son of God, I think... Mark would probably expect the readers to understand Holy Spirit in the Jewish terms, to understand it the way the Jewish people understood the, the Holy Spirit, so not part of our Trinitarian theology. So the purpose of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was to reveal God's truth to humanity and enable man to recognize that truth when they saw it and heard it. So kind of similar, actually, to, to what we would say about the work of the Holy Spirit today. If we look at what Luther says about the work of the Holy Spirit— when he writes his explanation of the third article of the Creed, the Holy Spirit calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth. The Spirit forgives daily and richly all the sins to me and to all believers. So when we, when anyone were to reject that, reject the work of the Holy Spirit, and when we have a continued rejection of what the Holy Spirit tells us about Jesus, I guess that's the blaspheme of the Holy Spirit. So so the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is I'm never going to be forgiven because I don't need forgiveness. And so the Holy Spirit is what reveals to us our need for forgiveness. The Holy Spirit is what reveals to us our need for a God who would die for us. And so if we blaspheme the Holy Spirit, we say, no, I don't need that. I don't want that. Uh, there's an attitude that we have that just says that whatever God is offering is not important to me. And so it's not, I don't think it's that God won't forgive that sin. It's that we will never, the person who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never see that they need forgiveness and will never want God's forgiveness. And so the, the, the gift will be there, but, but the person will just decide that it's, it's never something that they're going to need. It's, and so, so all the gifts and promises of God are irrelevant to them because they just don't have any interest in it. They don't have any they don't have any desire to admit that they need God. They don't have any, any awareness of their own sins. And so they just are un, uninterested. And I think that, you know, for all of eternity, then, if they're not interested in God in life and they're not interested in God after life, then God gives them exactly what they want. Yeah, very nicely put. Excellent answer, Nick. Good. I'm going to leave it at that one. You don't have anything to add? I have nothing, believe it or not, to add. I mean, nicely put, well stated. Wow. If I'm hearing you right. Basically, if someone does not trust, believe, or want, and completely ignores or dismisses the work of the Holy Spirit, you know, they're not asking for forgiveness. And uh, am I getting your point right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Say, uh, we did get some correspondence here. And uh, uh, if I can enter into that, the sheriff of Isani County, Chris Kulk, sent me a text after our last podcast, which was all about honoring the Sabbath, going to church. I got on my soapbox about why I think that matters. And so Chris sent me a text that says, so it sounds like I need to forbid my troops from any rescue operations on Sunday. All rescues will wait now until the Monday day shifters just to be in compliance with the Old Testament. So, Nick, I think we better <laughs> That's give funny. some clarification to Chris's question. Any any thoughts on that? Well, it was your soapbox, so I'll let you do the one. 
<laughs> I would say that we are grateful for those who are first responders and for all those and who are willing to stand in harm's way and who are w- willing to be on call to help those in need. But yeah, a- Andy, I'm going to let you uh, I'm going to let you dig yourself out of this one. <laughs> That's right. I think we answered it in this podcast when uh, we talked about Jesus healing on the Sabbath and whether you know that was right or wrong. Clearly, the Pharisees thought it was the wrong thing to do. And uh, but what Jesus was doing is bringing healing, and what all of uh, Chris's team, the sheriff's department, would be doing is bringing a form of healing uh, to people in need at their deepest hour of need. Uh, so yeah, you don't want to wait till Monday on that one. Nice, and we appreciate Chris and the sheriff's department, the deputies, what everyone is doing there. We also got an email from uh, Amy Stridham, who is a Luther Sem grad and is local in our area of Cambridge, Isani, Minnesota here, child of our congregation. She had some uh, neat comments. She said the Old Testament, she described it, it's Jesus' origin story. Uh, Where did Jesus come from and whose story did he enter into and why? And the New Testament is now what? How does Jesus fit into the lives of people who don't fit into the story? What about people all the rest of the world that don't know any of these laws? And she said, thanks, pastors, for good conversation. So, Amy, thank you for your comments and notes. I thought that was cool. So uh, someone is listening. That is good. Nick, do we have any numbers? You said the other day that we had a, we had broken 500 downloads. Uh, that was awesome. So Yeah, are we just grateful to everyone who listens. I don't have the most current uh, numbers are again our podcast was posted pretty late last week so uh, and i don't have the report for this past uh, for this past week but uh, i love the idea of the origin story you know uh, the idea that it's important to know the backstory and and it's even you know it, and for some of us it's not even enough the idea of well what's the origin story of the origin story i had a uh, someone asked me the other day so did do we really believe God created him himself? Is that what is that what we're saying? And so what's oh, yeah, what's the yeah. origin of the origin? It's like uh, um, I gotta check my watch. <laughs> you know that, that you gotta check your watch. That's right. That that is the classic children's question. I mean, I think I got it twice last week. Once for my own kids. I mean, okay, if God invented everything, who invented God? And uh, then one of the uh, kids in a Logos Bible study, that's a fourth, fifth, and sixth grade Bible study I was leading this week, they wanted to know that. And, you know, mystery goes hand in hand with faith. And I think that we don't have all the answers and we need to be comfortable with mystery if we're ever going to do this discipleship thing very well. And another note on the discipleship thing is I continue to be amazed by the number of kids that really... Uh, maybe it's just at my church who, who don't know some of the just basic core discipleship pieces. And I only reason I know they don't know them is I ask them, any of you know the Lord's Prayer? And, you know, they've heard of it. They've, you know, said it a couple of times. But, you know, I'm, I'm really challenging parents these days to teach their kids the Lord's Prayer, to pray with their kids at night, to not only teach them to pray like Jesus taught us to pray, but to pray about things going on in their own life, to think about getting back to praying before meals, teaching their kids how to do the praying thing. I think this discipleship piece is so much easier if it starts at a young age. And I often talk to people that have been away from the church for a long time, and they part of the reason they say they don't come back is they, it's just so foreign. They don't know any of it. And I was talking with someone just this morning who said, uh, you know, what is who is God and who is the Lord, and is there a difference in the Old Testament? And it was really deep questions that were really uh, kind of cool, and people digging in deep. Uh, that person had been away from the church for a long time and, and just finds such great joy and experience and even, I would say, a sense of adventure through his participation in the church today. I think it's just awesome. Nick, comments on any of that? That's all great stuff. I uh, I agree. Yeah, the, 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 the prayer piece with children I think is so important. Our daughter is going to be five in a couple months, and she's kind of getting to that point now where she – uh, she has been leading us in prayer before dinner, but she's been singing songs that she's learned. But now, last night, she actually, for the first time, she said a, a prayer that was more than, you know, thank you, God, for this food. It was, you know, I was sitting there so proud. And to see her reflecting on what God is doing in her life and what God is doing in the life of her family and thanking God for that. And so, yeah, it's an important part of passing down the faith to the next generation. So, uh, absolutely. And making sure that if we, don't teach it at a young age. There's, 
you know, the things we the things we teach at a young age just become second nature, yeah. and so it's important that we do that for for young children. Absolutely. By the way, my son uh, said the prayer before lunch yesterday, and our uh, meal for lunch was wild boar from Texas. So thanks to the people of Texas for the wild boar. My uh, father-in-law went down there and brought a few back north, and it was excellent. So yeah, I um, never had it, but I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> I'd, I'd rather have <laughs> the donuts. Never had the, oh, it's awesome. I think it was from Cameron, Texas, outside of uh, Austin, I think. So. Well, next time he goes wild boar hunting, you should go. Yeah, they don't. I don't think they want me with a gun around. Uh, you know, I've shot since I was a kid, but <laughs> I don't know. And, and you know, I don't quite know what I do. They use shorter rifles because apparently these wild boar have uh, 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 tusks is the wrong word, horns, some form of horns, horns, and they will charge you. So I don't know. For Good for times. another day. All right. Have a great week. Enjoy your trip. I know you're. You're uh, going uh, going somewhere fun, some training. I'm headed to the ELCA Congregational Vitality Training, and I think it's going to be warmer there. So we'll see what comes out of that. Our church is participating in the Anchor Church uh, program, and I think you know it's kind of a cool thing if people are still listening now that we're past the texts. But it's about how do churches of all sizes join together for mission instead of being in competition with one another and often the uh, smaller churches are always jealous of the bigger churches because they think they have all the staffing and all the money and all the uh, you know every church has the same problems and we need to find ways to jointly you know by problems I should say opportunities right. to challenges. speak into join into challenges there we go if nothing else Andy it will be warmer yeah, it will be warmer. That's true. That's true. All right. So. Uh, enjoyed Mark 3. Uh, everybody, thanks for listening. We will see you next week with Mark Chapter 4. Everyone have a great week, and God bless you. Thank you.